0: Nos comprole pia benedicat Virgo Maria. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Mary, cause of our joy. Pray for us. Saint Dominic. Pray for us. Saint Francis. St. Louis-Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have hit a number of aspects of what it means to name Our Lady the cause of our joy over the conferences this weekend, and yet there is still more to say. How marvelous is that when you think about it? A simple title and ordinarily when we hear something we just want a simple direct explanation. Unfortunately that's the last thing we got this weekend. (laughs) And yet what do we see these. This handful of words unfolds in a marvelous way into a tremendous abundance. In no small measure is that not the very essence of the mystery of the incarnation. The God whom the very heavens cannot enclose cloisters himself in the small space of Our Lady's womb. Physically, small, and yet the presence, infinite in its greatness. Is this not the mystery of the Blessed Sacrament? The consecrated host is a tiny thing. Easily overlooked of no obvious importance. And yet in the same way, infinity present in that tiny space. The infinite love of Jesus Christ because the infinite person of the Word made flesh is there. And so it should be no surprise then that something so simple as a title of Our Lady, a name of Our Lady, unfolds this way because everything about Our Lady is touched by and at the service of the infinite life of God and the infinite love out of which he has chosen to save you, to save me. One of the truly ancient and beautiful and largely overlooked and forgotten today. Descriptions of Our Lady has a direct connection to this idea of Our Lady as the cause of our joy. And it is another reference from the book of Genesis, but not from the story of Adam, Eve, and the garden. It is a reference to the story of Noah, and the ark, and the flood. And it's this After the flood waters receded, and Noah and his sons left the ark, and Noah offered sacrifice to God, the Lord said to Noah, Behold, I now set my bow in the clouds, my bow in the clouds of heaven, as a sign that no longer will the waters flood down and destroy the earth. And when the clouds appear in the sky, so shall my bow appear, and I will see it, and I will remember. There's a beautiful tradition in the church that sees in that rainbow Our Lady assumed into glory. The bow that the Lord has set in the heavens, the beautiful sign of his covenant not to destroy, but to save the world. And when I see that ark, that bow, that beauty which I have placed, I will remember. And my heart will be moved to save you. And what do we Catholics believe about Our Lady that enthroned in glory in heaven, and who enthroned her? The Lord. Who set her in the heavens. The Lord who has adorned her with the bright beauty. Of heavenly grace and glory. She doesn't simply passively occupy a throne. But from that throne looking down on earth she sees your need. And on your behalf she turns to the Lord this idea of Our Lady and the rainbow, that she catches the eye of her son. She catches the eye of the Almighty on your behalf. And when I see my bow, I shall not destroy. I will save. What a beautiful idea. Cause of our joy. And it is a reminder of the active presence that Our Lady has. Our Lady is not merely a good example. Our Lady is not simply a model of holiness. Our Lady is a presence that is actively involved in the life of the church and the lives of the faithful. And turning to her involves recognizing that holy activity of Our Lady. And trusting it. (coughs) But this dialectic. That we've had running through the weekend. Between. A world in need of salvation. And a Lord who decides to save the world. Is something that is worth pausing on. Because this idea of joy. Has asserted itself in the Catholic tradition in a couple of very important ways through the century, not the least of which is liturgical. And to get at that for a moment, because what we want to do is not just be well informed about the meaning of a title of Our Lady, we also want to know how this can help us live our faith and experience the fullness of the Catholic tradition. So I'm going to talk a little bit about something curious that you see a couple times a year, exactly twice, in fact, on social media on a regular basis today. Every year in December and usually in March, sometimes in April, you'll see on social media priests posting photos of themselves in pink rose-colored vestments on certain Sundays or around certain Sundays. And there's this... There's this sense of, wow, look at this. We're going back to the pink or the rose, and we haven't done this in a long time. And on the one hand, there's this joyful, gee whiz, enthusiasm and nostalgia about it where we're reappropriating an element of our tradition. On the other hand, something's missing because we still haven't embraced the reason for that color which is deeper than the fact of wearing it. And on a personal note, it is why I don't, if it's my choice, use rose-colored vestments, even though the liturgy allows it. And it's because the color relates to something, something very important, and that touches what we've been dealing with this weekend. In the scriptures, the Pharisees come to Jesus And the only time on record where they agree with John the Baptist and his followers is in this question they give to Jesus. Why do the followers of John the Baptist, and why do we fast and your disciples don't? And the Lord's answer is, because the bridegroom is with them. And it is the time for rejoicing. But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away. And that day, oh, they will fast. What an interesting answer that is. The seasons of Lent and Advent in their origin are fundamentally ordered to getting ready to rejoice. Lent is ordered to preparing us for the celebration of the Holy Days and the Great Victory over sin and death that the Lord wins through his resurrection. But the joy of Easter is a joy that must be prepared for. Isn't that interesting? We just like the idea of rejoicing, don't we? You see, one of the things that we struggle with, our modern age loves the idea of being joyful, loves the idea of celebrating. Loves the idea of being happy. Remember what we said Friday evening about happiness? How easily we lose it? And the church is not so. The church understands that deep, lasting, abiding joy, not shallow passing happiness and good feeling is something that cannot be entered into, received, or experienced in a merely shallow way. The heart must prepare. And so the season of preparation is brought in. Not a season of rejoicing, but a season of fasting. The bridegroom is not here. When he's here, oh, we will rejoice but he's not here now. And so we fast and make ourselves ready. Advent, which is ordered to the celebration of the joy of the nativity has a similar origin. We wait for the bridegroom to come. And when he comes, the rejoicing will be great, but he's not here now. And so we prepare. And so Advent, just like Lent, had a seriously and strongly penitential character about it, marked by works of repentance, self-denial, and fasting. Boy, that doesn't sound like a recipe for celebration, does it? But unlike today, the communal observance of those things in a previous age was much more severe. It was not a light fasting or an occasional fasting, but a heavier fasting. The works of penance were weightier things and even the celebration of the liturgy had a muted character about it that we often don't see today. Because let's be honest, in many of our parishes, if all you did was hear the music and the style of the prayers, would you really be able to tell the difference? between Advent or Christmas or Lent and Easter? In many places, no. There's no change in how the liturgy feels. And so what happened in those times of penance and making ready? Because there was a danger of the faithful becoming exhausted. Think about that for a second. How many of us on a regular basis get exhausted during Lent? How many of us have found our Advent observance so full and demanding that we were tired (laughs) let's be honest we might be tired because of our Christmas shopping and everything else but we're not tired because of our penitential or spiritual works and so a break was built into the season signaled by a change in color that's the meaning of the pink And those Sundays were signaled by the first word of the liturgy. Rejoice. Gaudete Sunday, Laetare Sunday. But the idea being, look up and see. The bridegroom draws near. Look up and remind yourself of why it is you prepare. And think of the hope for which you are readying yourself. And in the thought of that hope, rejoice. And so the third Sunday of Advent with this mysterious pink candle, that's the reason. The fourth Sunday of Lent with the option for the rose-colored vestments, that's why. But note the beauty, and the power, and the effectiveness of the color is directly related to the quality of the penance and preparation that is being done. If it's minimal, we don't feel a break. On those days, it wasn't just that the color changed. Penance was relaxed. On those days, the liturgy had a joyful note added to it. The deacon returned to his dalmatic. But typically today, deacons wear a dalmatic every Sunday. The organ returned. Typically in our churches, the organ and the other instruments don't go away. And so note, with the color change, there was an abundance of music. There was an adornment before the altar that wasn't there before. Even the vestments weren't just a different color. There was an abundance about them. And it was brief, but it served as a glimpse for the tired, exiled children of the Lord, of that hope for which they were preparing themselves. That strengthened by that hope, they would be renewed and refreshed for that final period of preparation which would bring them to the doorstep of the mystery they were going to celebrate and embrace. How beautiful that idea is. And I want to stress, I speak this way not to be merely critical of what we do in many of our places today. I speak this way because this understanding, this older understanding still has great power for those individuals who would embrace it. To ask that question of, what is that dynamic between self-denial and fulfilled rejoicing in my spiritual life? And is there perhaps some way to enter into this in harmony with the liturgical rhythms of the church? Lent is coming soon, and it's not too soon to be thinking about it. And so the question is, over Lent, that idea of recognizing This is a time of preparation for great joy. But the greater the joy, the more serious the preparation needs to be. This is a time where, in a sense, I want to have a certain physical and spiritual unsatisfied hunger within me over the weeks of the season so that I am ready to feast at the banquet of the mysteries of Easter. Just think about this. Lent is six weeks long. Easter is seven weeks long. How many of you have actually been able to sustain rejoicing for the seven weeks of Easter? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Think about it. We have an easier time with six weeks of fasting and penance than we do with seven weeks of rejoicing. Isn't that a kick in the head? We would think rejoicing would be easier, but it underscores the fact that we don't know how to rejoice. And our weakness is not simply a weakness of shallow self-indulgence. It's a weakness that prevents us from fully rejoicing for a sustained period of time. But perhaps the question is, is there something we can do in our preparation? that gets us more ready. It's easier when as parishes or religious communities we embrace this together and we do it together, but the reality is, as individuals, that doesn't mean that we can't do something. But understand that your observance of Lent is not simply because it's good to do penance every now and then. That's true, but that's true any time of the year the observance of Lent is ordered to preparing you for the celebration of the Holy Days and the subsequent joy of the Easter season. And that means part of your Lenten game plan should be how are you going to remind yourself over the seven weeks of Easter that we still need to be celebrating? You know, this is important in our culture which celebrates Christmas beginning in October. And at 7 p.m. on December 25th, the radio stations go back to regular programming. (coughs) And so the day itself is meaningless in that sense. It unfolds into nothing except going to the store the next day and returning the gifts you don't want. On the other hand, for the Christian, it must not be like that our preparation for the season should have a certain sobriety about it. That's not to say I I can't attend the office Christmas party, but it might be I limit how many of these things I attend. It might be I limit how much time I am there. And why? Because when the season of Christmas arrives, it too is a season, not a day, Of rejoicing but we're quick to get up and move aren't we there's a restlessness about the human heart that's why I stress this you know Christmas is a season Easter is a season and what is a season by definition an extended period of time you know up north what does everybody complain about The winters are so long. Let's go to Alabama. Let's go to Florida. Let's go to Texas. Because the winter is long. It's a season. The liturgical year has seasons too. And seasons are lengthy periods of time. What an idea that is. And so the time of Christmas is a season of joy in the incarnation of the Lord. A season of rejoicing that God indeed is with us. And in the face of Jesus born of Mary, the light of the face of the Lord has shone upon us and we are saved. And what is the fundamental task? It is to linger in the presence not to be quick to move on to the next thing. This is the other element of naming Our Lady as the cause of our joy. It is an abiding cause that we recognize. And we still find Our Lord with Our Lady. And notice how Scripture, when it speaks of the way Christ comes into the world, is not in a hurry to get on with things. We hear about the announcement of his birth. We hear about the visit. We hear about the betrothals of Mary and Joseph. We're given to see the movement to Bethlehem and the lying of the infant in the manger. And we're still not done then we are given to see the joy of heaven breaking out by the angels. We're given to see the shepherds find their way to the cave and their wonder and surprise and joy at what they find, at who they find there. And then we're still not done. And then Scripture tells us of the circumcision of the Lord eight days later. And you think, okay, now we're ready to get on with the rest of the message about Jesus and what happens. We need to hear about Simeon and the temple and the presentation. And what do we see there? Yet another act of great rejoicing. We are presented with the Magi. Note how the idea of Jesus being born and coming into our world is not a brief thing. How remarkable is that? How remarkable is that? In our hurried world and our hurried mind, as much as we say we want happiness and peace and joyfulness, We never linger long within it, do we? One of the greatest enemies to a solid spiritual life is exactly that restlessness. The Lord gives me his peace. How many of you, when you're praying, okay, and again, this isn't confession, so don't put your hands up, but how many of you, when you're praying, you have that odd moment of your prayer has been not bad, but largely mechanical, And all of a sudden, as you're moving to the end of your prayer, you begin to feel something. A little stirring. A certain peace. But the problem is you're just finishing up. And so what do you do? You finish. We do that. We do that. Sometimes it's unavoidable. I literally do have to get up. But many times it's not. And isn't it interesting? Because I've decided I'm done. This is going to finish. And yet the Lord is saying, but I've got something for you right now. But I move. Over the rhythm of the church's liturgy, there's this beautiful dynamic that says, Linger here, absorb the mystery or be absorbed into the mystery. Let it penetrate you. Let it shape you. This is the essence of what meditation is. This is the essence of contemplation. Bluntly put, this is the essence of Thanksgiving after Holy Communion, which we're not good at anymore either. You know, we. We come to Mass, we receive Holy Communion very quickly if we're not distracted by the announcements that come next. Mass ends quickly, and we are all in a hurry to leave. And we forget the Lord we've received even before we've left the church. Lamentably, many of us will forget the Lord we've received before we've gotten back to our chairs. It's not that Jesus isn't there. It's not that I haven't received him, at least in a physical sense. But I'm so easily distracted. So much in a hurry to get to what's important. I don't linger with the gift and the presence I've been given. Note that as we Look at Our Lady and the way the Lord comes into the world. Time, in a sense, slows down. And the essence of this is presence. Appreciative presence. And note that the Easter season is seven weeks long. You know, and why? The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord, scripture says, after his resurrection. And they rejoiced in his presence for 40 straight days. And then spent another nine joyfully preparing themselves for a promise that he gave them, which they received on the 50th day. Note again, the Easter season is not just Jesus rose from the dead. Good, we're done. Let's get back to everything else. The essence of the joy of Easter is a sustained lingering in the victorious presence of the Lord. But if I haven't been hungering for that victory over Lent, I'm not going to be inclined to linger in it during Easter. So this issue of joy in Christian life should have an impact in terms of how we celebrate across the year, not just in our private prayer, in terms of how we celebrate and act in our churches and how we participate in the liturgical unfolding and the liturgical unpacking of the mysteries of Christ. And why? Because this touches who you are. Okay, more important than you being a man or a woman, than you being of a certain ethnicity, more important than your career, More important than who you are in your family. Is that you have been claimed by Jesus Christ. And given life by him. And salvation by him. And it's not those things. That determine our Christianity. It is our Christianity that is to determine those things. It's not the fact that I'm a wife or a husband or a son or a daughter that determines my Christianity. It's my Christianity that determines what kind of husband I am, what kind of wife or son or daughter I am. It is not my profession that determines my following of Jesus. It is my being united to Jesus that determines what I do with my profession. Boy, how easy it is to get that reversed, isn't it? How easy it is to assume that these other things are the first thing. But it's not true. But if we don't appreciate who we are, and if we can't celebrate Christmas well, and Easter well, and the seasons of the life of Christ well, we will never appreciate who we are. We'll only have a vague idea of it. And that's not bad, but let's be blunt. It's not all that great either. Is it better than nothing? Yes. Wouldn't it be better to have more? Of course. Just a couple days ago, the last Tuesday, in fact, the church celebrated the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. And one of the remarkable things about the events of Lourdes is a certain, quietly, joyful silence that marks the presence of Our Lady. On the first day that Our Lady appeared to Bernadette, she said, nothing. Nothing at all. Bernadette simply saw her. And Bernadette felt moved to pray, and then something happened. How many times in the course of your life have you guys made the sign of the cross? You make it without even thinking about it, don't you? Imagine what it would be like for you to try to make the sign of the cross and you suddenly couldn't. And not because your arm didn't work, just because you couldn't. And the young girl, Bernadette, experienced that. She went to make the sign of the cross. And couldn't. And it wasn't until the lady made the sign of the cross herself that Bernadette found herself able to do so. One of the things our lady is doing here, without saying a word, there's no message here, without saying a word, is she is sharing her prayer with Bernadette. It wasn't that Bernadette's prayer was bad. But it wasn't as strong as it could be. It wasn't as full as it could be. And note that this gift, this gift of reengaging the basic beginning of prayer, we're not talking that Our Lady gifted her with the height of mystical contemplation. It's the sign of the cross. But it's like a key. How would any of us stand to benefit from improving the beginning of our moments of prayer? From improving how it is we come into the presence of the Lord in the first place. We lament sometimes that my prayer is unfulfilling, unsatisfying. It's been mechanical for years. And maybe the problem is as simple as that. And here is Bernadette in the presence of Our Lady receiving a new way. The gesture is physically the same. But what happens by means of it is now different for her. Cause of our joy. and Should not our devotion to Our Lady, the presence of Our Lady, strengthen our prayer? But how simple and how beautiful and how remarkable. One of the other beautiful dynamics of what happens at Lourdes is it's almost like a little game that is played between Bernadette and the Virgin Mary. Bernadette says to the lady, because the priests have been asking, her family has been asking, who are you? What is your name? Tell me your name. And the lady smiles and doesn't say a word. Think about that for a second. When somebody asks you your name, do you smile? Normally we just blurt it out, don't we? Think of this for a second. When you sign your name, do you stop and smile because you're in love with the mystery of who you are? And so imagine this. I mean, you know, this sometimes we just focus on the wrong things. One of the elements that is truly powerful at lords is this. And it's marvelous. What is your name? And she smiles. You know, and it's the smile not just of let me see how long I can string the little girl along. You know, this this smile is that that question of who are you is a source of joy for the lady. The question of who are you, as she considers the answer, she's delighted. As I said, there's this understated quiet joyfulness in the silence of certain elements of lords. It's not dramatic, and so it doesn't catch our attention, but it's real. And it is one of the most consistent elements of the experience because day after day, Bernadette shows up. She's with the lady and she says, tell me your name. Who are you? What is your name? And she smiles. So this doesn't happen just once. Imagine this rhythm. There's, there's something mysterious Marvelous, good about the woman. What is your name? And she smiles. You know, it's it's not even like our lady says, well, you know, okay, I'm over that, I'm done rejoicing. (laughs) Um, There's an abiding contentment, an abiding delight. It is her response to the question, who are you? Man, nothing says cause of our joy like that, does it? <laughs> Think about that. Who are you? And there's a delighted smile. Who are you? And the response is a certain joyfulness. Not explosive, not dramatic, not loud, but deep. And real and this little game between the two of them there's a certain playfulness about this continues until the 25th of march who are you now isn't this interesting because as you know on the 25th of march we celebrate the great feast of the incarnation of the lord When Gabriel came from heaven and announced to Mary who she really is. Because Gabriel doesn't name her Mary. He names her full of grace. On that day, March 25th, where we celebrate the Feast of the Incarnation, We also celebrate the fact that this is the day Mary learns heaven's name for her, full of grace. Gabriel greets her in a way that says, rejoice. And this smile of Our Lady is the echo of that command to rejoice. That Gabriel gave her when he named her full of grace. All those years later, that joy is still there. Who are you? And Bernadette's description is is beautiful here. On this day, she said to her, what is your name? And the lady took her hands over her heart, as if she is gathering into herself. Everything about her. And then she finally answers the question. And she says, I am the Immaculate Conception. And this is curious. This is curious because she doesn't say what we would expect. I am the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. I am the Immaculate Conception. (laughs) Who are you? Because she was full of grace from the first instant of her life. Freed from sin and filled with grace from the very beginning. Who are you? Mary answers with the answer of who she was when she came into existence. I have been freed from sin. I have been filled with nothing but love for the Lord. I have been sustained by him from the first instant of my life. And everything he has given me has been for the sake of his son. And therefore for you. That is who I am. But, you know, what a... What a marvelous example that all too few of us are aware of. This joy in Our Lady over that mysteriously beautiful truth of who she is. How funny it is when somebody says, tell me about yourself. Isn't it amazing the trivial stuff we say? Um, Tell me about yourself. How many of us even have no idea where to begin or how to answer? And it's not because we're worried about disclosing great secrets. We literally just don't know where to start. We often don't know ourselves. And the saints have long stressed that the great grace which is foundational for the spiritual life is to know ourselves. Self-knowledge. If we don't know ourselves, how will we ever know where God is at work in our lives? If we don't know ourselves. But the other important thing is, self-knowledge is a grace. Like devotion to Mary is. Which means if you want to know yourself, if your only reference is yourself, you are out of luck if your only reference is your culture, your family, your job, your problems, your goals, your ambitions, your dreams, you don't know who you are at all. Because the only one who can reveal the truth of your life is the one who gave it to you. Self-knowledge comes from God, not from us. And if we want to know who we really are, we must let him show us and we must even ask for that grace. Beg for it, in fact. Lord, let me see. Lord, let me know. Otherwise, this fallen world defines us. Otherwise, things that are less than we are define us and claim us and shape us. Not so Our Lady. She knows the joyful truth of who she is because she never allowed the serpent or the world or anyone else to define her other than the Lord. And on knowing who she is, she embraced it, gathered it to herself, and lived it. And here, here we do see a marvelous example that Our Lady now gives us. Do we really appreciate not just what we've been given, but who we are in the eyes of God? Do we really appreciate that the Lord set his eyes on you to save you? because he loves you. Do we really appreciate, not just what he has done for us, but that he has made us and how he can continue to shape our lives, to be more perfectly those whom he created us to be. Cause of our joy, This joyfulness of Our Lady is a great thing. And so, continuing in this note of Our Lady's joy, we now come to that great expression of joyfulness, which is the source and fountain of all Christian praise of the great things the Lord has done for us in His Son. And let's linger with those words. Because Elizabeth turns to Our Lady and says, Blessed are you. Blessed be the fruit of your womb. Blessed are you who believed that what the Lord had promised you would be fulfilled. And here is Our Lady bearing within her her Lord, bearing within her the fulfillment of what the Lord had said to her. But what did the Lord say to Mary? It wasn't simply you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. That was what was spoken to Mary individually. But what was spoken to her people and therefore also spoken to her Was that there would be a son of David on the throne. That a savior would come. Mary. All of that which God had said to the world. He also said to Mary. Who is part of that world. Mary's greatness is not simply that she believed what Gabriel said to her. Notice that what Gabriel says to her is deliberately connected to all of these other things. What was promised to your people, what was promised to your world, is promised to you. And in you will be born the fulfillment of all of that. And so she bears within her not just her private joy. She bears within her the joy of Israel that has been waiting for the true son of David to come. She bears within her the very joy of the world. For the fallen children of Adam have been waiting for their brother to come and save them. And now that brother is here. Small wonder then, she says. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Notice what she doesn't say. My lips proclaim the greatness of the Lord. With my mouth I announce the greatness of the Lord. Because bluntly put, talk is cheap. And there is far too much empty praise of the Lord on lips that wag. But are disconnected from hearts that live. And so when she says my soul proclaims, she is saying something about herself. In the very depth of who I am. There is joy. The very verb of my living. Is the proclamation of his greatness the energy of my living. I who have received so much is this great proclamatory gratitude. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. No, she doesn't even say, I rejoice in what you do. I rejoice in you. She'll then talk about her reasons for the joy. But the reasons are not the joy. Her joy is rooted in a person. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Not my own. My soul doesn't sing out how lucky I am. It sings out how marvelous the Lord. My spirit does not rejoice in what you've given me. It rejoices in you who have given it to me. How powerful is that? In the depth of who I am, in the center of my being, this is who I am and what I do. Small wonder then when Bernadette says, what is your name? She smiles. And when she answers, small wonder that she presses her hands to her heart. Because this is who she is. Who is she? Her soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. Because he who is the Savior of her people... Is her savior too. How absolutely exquisite. And then as she unpacks her reasons for this. Because he has looked on his servant in her lowliness. If you read through the Old Testament carefully. One of the most remarkable things that you discover is that in a certain level, the center of gravity of Israel's experience with the Lord is the surprise that he paid so much attention to a people so insignificant. It is not because you were the greatest of people that the Lord set his heart upon you and chose you, but you, in fact, were the least of all peoples. And because of that, he loved you. How remarkable. What Our Lady says about herself is what the Lord has always said about Israel. There is nothing great about you. It is that you are small. It is that you are ignored and overlooked and neglected. But I see you. The world misses you. The mighty in their thrones think not of you. But I, whose throne is above the heavens, I do not miss you. Because in my eyes, the mighty are as small as you are. In my eyes, no wealth of the world impresses me. And so I see you who are small. And so, who is Our Lady? She is that lowly, hidden, and small one, uniquely blessed and filled with the graces that the Lord himself delights in, and yet small, not in spite of it, but because of it. As greatly blessed as she is, the greatest blessing is this humility of Our Lady. She always understands that before the Lord, she is nothing, It doesn't matter how much she's received. Before the Lord, she is still nothing. And she knows that truth. In fact, she who is more greatly blessed than any of us knows better than any of us how much greater than she is the Lord who blessed her. We put ourselves on pedestals. We like to celebrate how close we are to the Lord. Our Lady, on the other hand, always bows low before him. Much lower than we are. As St. Augustine says, if you would build a tower that reaches to the heavens, you begin by digging and going down. And the deeper you dig, the better the foundation you can build. He has looked upon his servant In her loneliness. And all ages to come will call me blessed. Because the Almighty has done great things for me. There will come a time when the world will know what he has done. And they will call me blessed not because of me. But because of what he has done for me. Blessed are you among women. Blessed because of what he has done. And note here that Mary corrects Elizabeth a little bit. Blessed are you who believed. No. Blessed because of what he has done. His work, not mine. she moves from this into celebrating what? You would think now she's going to unpack what God has done personally for her, wouldn't you? That's that's the way this usually works. God has been so good to me. Brother, let me give you the list of wonderful experiences I have personally had. It's It's the way it happens, right? We Christians do this all the time. God has been so good to me. He did this for me. And this for me. And this for me. You know, and the funny thing is, in the end, who are we talking about? Me. Know <coughs> um, what Our Lady says. He has done great things for me. What are those great things? He scattered the proud in their conceits. He has taken the mighty and pulled them off of their thrones. And the lowly, he's lifted up. What has he done for me? He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, he's sent empty away. What has he done for me? He has come to the help of his servant, Israel. And note how she says this. That help is alive in her womb at that moment. As she is proclaiming this, the God she celebrates is enthroned within her. And she sees everything he does for her is connected to something he does for you. And his world and his people. And she has received nothing that doesn't involve you. She's received nothing that doesn't involve the Lord's love for his people of whom she is one. And of whom she would insist, she is the least. Blessed are you who believed, and what does she say? You could almost see her. her hand over where the Lord is saying he's remembered he's remembered his promise of mercy that's where her joy comes from he's remembered and here he is the promise he made blessed are you who believed what the Lord had said to you he has remembered his promise of mercy promise he made to our fathers to Abraham and his children of whom I am one that's what he said to me how absolutely remarkable cause of our joy the entire people has looked for the fulfillment of the promise and she is the first first to give voice to their joy that the promise has come. Because her joy is not a private joy. She is rejoicing at your salvation in that moment. She is rejoicing at the salvation of all of those unborn generations yet to come. Because that's what was promised. And creation now gives beautiful, joy-filled praise to its Lord and Maker by that one who was so singularly blessed and yet who sees not in that singular blessing the mere cause of her own uniqueness, but the unique cause of the salvation of the world, the unique cause of our salvation. Her Savior is our Savior. This, this is in no small measure why so many across the years have strongly encouraged the Christian faithful to pray the Magnificat after they've received Holy Communion. Because that's who you receive. That one who remembered the promise he made to Abraham, our father, and his children. Is that one who fulfills his promise in you even as you receive him. It is the original inspired prayer of one who holds the presence and life of the Lord within. And if Mary is great because the infinite God of heaven is enclosed within her. Note how you get to share that greatness when you receive Holy Communion. That same infinite Lord cloisters himself, at least for a little while, in you. Another beautiful title of Our Lady was, Oh, more spacious than the heavens. Wider than the universe. Because the God that heaven can't contain is contained in you. Well then, shouldn't we, able to be, we be able to say that about you too today, after Holy Communion this Sunday? O oh, you more spacious than the heavens, because the God whom the very heavens cannot contain cloisters himself now in you. But well, to appreciate that, we have to remember it. And we have to slow down and linger and rest in the presence, so that appreciating him, we can celebrate him. so that appreciating in what he does, we may come to love more deeply the giver of the great gift. Joyfulness and gratitude are interconnected realities. I rejoice in what I appreciate. Appreciation requires time and attention, doesn't it? It's one of the big differences between joy and mere happiness. Happiness passes quickly. It comes and goes. It's often random. Joy is abiding, which means it must be possessed. It must linger. You know, and so, so it is, Mary in her sorrow at the foot of the cross also rejoices, but she's not happy. This is the paradox of joy. She is afflicted with pain and she <laughs> suffers greatly. And yet there is the joy of knowing that the work her son came to do is being accomplished. This joy doesn't fill her with happiness in the moment. But it does sustain her. This is that joy that the Lord alludes to when he says, And when they persecute you and insult you and mistreat you because of me, rejoice and be glad. And we look at the Lord and say, uh, Let me do the math here. (laughs) Rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted. The Lord doesn't say, clap your hands and be happy. He doesn't say, have a big smile on your face. But he does say, in the midst of the difficulties you undergo because of me, recognize that that's a sign of how close you are to me and take joy in that. You see the difference? joy and hope and gratitude are all interrelated and sitting on them is this act of appreciating the truth of who we are if the world persecutes me for my faith it means my faith must be recognizable and that's a good thing it doesn't make the persecution less pleasant or less unpleasant but it is a good thing and it allows me to sustain myself to recognize there is more here than what I suffer. It means that my hardship is not merely pointless, but that it does have a purpose. One of the most beautiful things St. Louis de Montfort left to the little company he founded was a letter addressed to us. He prays for the foundation of his company in soaring, aggressive terms. But then he speaks to the company directly and personally in a letter he writes to us. And he talks about the smallness and the fragility of the community that has this great mission that he sees the Lord giving it. And he talks about all of those things that can easily overwhelm a small band who try to be faithful because the world is mighty, mightier than we are. And the world has more resources than we do. And it is an overwhelming task that, in human terms, is simply impossible. And so he says, but don't be afraid. And then he says, but not being afraid is not enough. God wants you, he says to us, to hope for great things from him and to be filled with joy by reason of this hope. In the midst of a world, he says then, which gives you nothing but multiplied reasons to fear, to know your own inadequacy, lift up your eyes, and hope in what you have been promised. Not as wishful thinking, not as escapism, Look at that hope and rejoice because the one who has given you that reason is trustworthy and sure and that hope will not disappoint. And knowing that hope will not disappoint, rejoice. The world remains frightening, but rejoice because you are looking for more than a reason to be afraid. You are looking more for for more than simply a way to be faithful. You are looking for more than just getting by and just surviving. Hope, and hope greatly. But hope in the Lord. Hold God to the great things He has promised, and hope there. What a remarkably beautiful statement that is cause of our joy it is not just that the lord has saved us it is not just that christ has come it's that christ comes even today and that christ continues to work even now and if we look at where our lives are going the answer is not what is my career path And the answer is not, what do I want for my family and thy children's careers? The answer is not, how am I doing my estate planning? These practical considerations are necessary and important to attend to. But the reality is, my life is going somewhere. And it better be toward heaven. Because that's what I've been promised and nothing less. But boy, how easy it is to settle for something less, isn't it? To look up and to look forward. So we'll conclude on this note. My first year in religious life, I was in formation at the shrine we have in uh, the state of Connecticut. And um, among the jobs I had was, I did the grocery shopping for the house. And, you know, and this was back in the days when you could still pay by check for things. And so when I went, when I went out to do the shopping, I would have to go up to uh, the elderly father who was our bursar. And I'd go to his room to get a check for the groceries. And, um, and then he would write it all out. I would take it to the store and bring him the receipt and everything. But I was in his room one day to get the grocery check. And as he's writing it out, he stopped and he, he just looked at me. Um, And this elderly man just looked at me and said, I was praying my rosary today. And in the Montfortian tradition, there are a couple different ways of saying the rosary that our founder has left us. And one of those ways has very specific graces and virtues to pray for with regard to the mysteries. And he said, I was praying my rosary today. And I was lingering on that second mystery, the ascension, and that petition where we ask the Lord by his mother for the grace of an ardent desire for heaven, our true home. And I've never forgotten just the tone of his voice, the urgency in his voice. He just said, we have to be absolutely convinced of this. That was all he said. You know, then he went back to filling out the check. <laughs> um, And I went and did the grocery shopping with those words just ringing in my head. And the question, how convinced am I really? How convinced is any of us that heaven indeed is our true home? And that is where our lives need to be moving. That the joy of heaven is our goal. The joy of heaven is what has been promised to us. And all of the lesser earthly joys that can fill our days can also distract us from that. And it is so easy to lose our way and to lose our focus, even lamentably in the busyness of trying to sort out our faith, where we lose ourselves in our projects in the churches, when we lose ourselves in all the things we want to accomplish. And if we ask where we're going, the answer is, well, these are the things we're doing. Not like that's bad, but man, doesn't that fall short of where the real goal is? As beautiful as this world is, we are moving through it. And it will not be our permanent home. Do we really desire What the Lord has promised. And if we don't, it's good to know that, because then that's a grace we really do need to ask for. And note, when Father de Montfort built it into his way of saying the rose, praying the rosary, it was exactly as a grace that he was asking for Kindle in me, O Lord, a genuine desire for heaven, which you have promised me. He's not saying, I have that right now. He likely did. But he knows that such a thing is a grace and a gift we need to seek. The abiding joy of heaven is a grace that we have to ask for. To seek it well, to desire it truly, is something we have to ask for it doesn't come naturally and it doesn't come from this world. Because this world will say, fix your eye and fix your heart on me. And this is all you have. And it is so easy even for the best of us to lose ourselves in that. And so when we call Our Lady the cause of our joy, it does require us to consider the fact that joy is real and open to us and an option for us. And it requires that we look up, and in looking up, see our direction. This is the meaning of those two great ancient titles of Our Lady. because I promised you, we would talk about a couple titles of Our Lady over the course of the weekend, and now we get to them. (coughs) Stella Maris and Stella Matutina. Star of the Sea and Star of the Morning. Because the star of the sea is that pole star that the sailor alone on the waters looks to. He looks up to that reliable star whose position doesn't change. And by that star, once he finds it, he can orient himself and find his way to the safe harbor. Star of the sea cause of our joy. Because what is the safe harbor? It's what he desires to get to. It's where there will be no more danger and where rest awaits him. The star of the morning. In fact, Matutina, the early morning. Why? The light of the morning star, which is the first light to break the darkness of night. As it rises, the sun has not yet come up, but the light of the morning star announces, soon it shall be day. And so the tired watchman knows his shift is almost over, so that those who long for the dangers of night to pass by and the bright light of day to come can rouse themselves knowing the moment is soon. The bright but lesser light of the morning star is the joyful herald of that intensely bright, greater light of the sun